Get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, save, retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Cowboy, the former Major League umpire and uh, one of the great storytellers in baseball, does the podcast with Michael and joins us here in studio here on 101 ESPN with Michelle Smallman and Randy Carricker. Joe, it's good to see you. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm excited about this, you know. You get me up early in the morning. I got a good head start now. <laughs> hey, the, the one thing that I want to, I, I wanted to start with is because we always hear nobody in baseball complains about the travel, but we know what it's like, and it's more difficult for umpires than teams. You guys didn't fly charter, and you guys no. had to be in a different city all the time. You did, you didn't have home stands, so being away from that, what's that been like? Have you had a chance to decompress from those 45 years of the travel that you did every six months or six yeah, months every year? Well, you know, um, when we first started, I was in the National League and we only did the National League teams. So when you'd go to the West Coast, you'd go for three series and then you'd go back East. And because you only were working one league, you, your travel was a lot harder than it is today, even though it's not easy today because, uh, now, if you work now that you work both leagues since 2000, they've they've consolidated the umpires into one group so that they work both leagues. Um, you go to the West Coast and you work Oakland, San Francisco, so you'd stay in the same hotel for both series. Mm-hmm. You go to New York, you work the Mets and the Yankees, and then since then we added replay, so you might be in New York for two weeks. You know, mm-hmm. so that made that made a big difference and helped you with the travel. But there again, you. When you do travel, you're having to travel commercial, and that's not easy. We had um, we had situations where we had to tell the commissioner's office and the league presidents, you know, if uh, if you rain this game out and we don't play tomorrow afternoon, we can't make the game on the West Coast. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, we actually had that situation happen in New York. It was the Dodgers and the Mets in the playoff, and they were going to have to rain out the game that night. And the television came to him and said, well, we want to play primetime tomorrow. And I told Bart Giamatti, I said, if we play primetime tomorrow, we can't get to the game in, in Los Angeles, and you're going to have to charter a plane. So he looked at he looked at Peter Ubron and said, what do I do? And Peter said, tell him the game's at 1 o'clock tomorrow, and if you want to televise it, you need to be here. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Joe, we obviously know about your career. We know how decorated you are, the longevity that you had. But I want to know about the origin story. I know you played baseball growing up, but how did Joe West become an umpire? I, it, the funniest thing was uh, I was a 12-year-old kid sitting in the stands at Guy Smith Stadium, and one of the parents didn't show up to umpire the bases. Now, this is the same league I was playing in. So the two coaches saw that I was probably the only male person at the stadium. And they said, well, let Joe West umpire the bases. So that was my first deal when I was 12 years old. And then I played football in college because my my mother found out they would pay for my meals and 
<laughs> she, said, she said, let me get this straight. You're going to pay for his room and board. You're going to pay for his meals. And she looked at Mike McGee and said, that's what you're telling me. And he said, yes, ma'am. And uh, she turned to me and said, you will play football. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I used to, he wouldn't let me play on the baseball team. So I used to go on part of the local high school and, and uh, Legion games, you know, after spring practice. But that's how I got started. And then this guy saw me umpire one time. And he was a director of uh, the umpires in the Carolina League. And he had hired big league umpires, Andy Olson, John McSherry, Frank Pooley, all these guys. And he said, if you're going to do this, you ought to learn how to do it right. <laughs> so, so he took me to some clinics, and he, he showed me little things that you wouldn't think of that anybody would notice, like how to take your mask off without your hat coming off. Oh. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but... If your hat comes off and blocks your vision on a plate at the plate, that's a big deal. Right, right. So I used to stand in front of the mirror for hours and practice taking my mask off so that my hat didn't come off. And after a while, it becomes second nature. And my brother thought I'd lost my mind. You know? <laughs> He's over there practicing on his guitar, and I'm taking a mask off in front of a mirror. But uh, those little things helped me when I went to the umpire school because I was ahead of all those kids, you know. And you hold your indicator, you know, your clicker in your left hand. Little things like that that you don't think of. You know, I, I never thought of this, Joe, but you mentioned that you officiated other sports. And when Whitey was younger, he officiated a lot in basketball. Do you, oh, yeah. do you think that, and I think most for the most part, umpires do have a, a great level, or pl- managers have respect for the umpires. But because Whitey had been through it, did you have a different relationship with a guy like that? Well, Whitey was really funny. The last time I kicked him out of a game... I actually told him, I said, you know you can't talk about my partner like that. He said, I know. <laughs> but he sent me a great big picture, you know, of me kicking him out of a game. It was it was like a collage, and it was it was hilarious. But uh, and it was over. The, this was back when they and when the Cardinals and the Mets were fighting each other every day for the pennant. So uh, and. Uh, he was angry about a pitch or something that the plate umpire called, and he said something to me about it. And he, he was a little vulgar about it. I said, you, you know, you can't talk about my partner like that. And I threw him out. <laughs> hey, were, were you able, because I think that was the best baseball I've ever seen. As an umpire, you kind of have to detach yourself from how great the games are, don't you? Well, do you it, or do you get drawn into you know, the, the drama? The, the greatest part of this job was that you're witnessing a piece of history every day. Some days it's bigger than others, but... You're, you're there, and you're part of a piece of history every day. I mean, I was, I, I know this because I saw it on the scoreboard. I was behind the plate for Willie McCovey's 500th home run, and they put it on the scoreboard. <laughs> That's the only reason I knew it. And then I was at first base for Nolan Ryan's fifth no-hitter. Uh, you know, I only had uh, one no-hitter behind the plate, and that was Clay Buckholz, and that was only like his second start in the big leagues. But, uh, you know, I've been there for a lot of things that happened. I mean, the... Uh, the playoffs back in the 2000s where it was the Yankees and the Red Sox, I was in almost every one of those. And, I mean, I, I know you remember the play at first base with Alex Rodriguez slapped at the glove. Mm-hmm. Well, if I don't change that, we're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. So, And the first base umpire didn't see it because there were so many people running at him, he didn't see Alex reach out and slap at the glove. So, And we changed that and uh, – Put Jeter back on because Jeter scored on the play, and we put uh, him back on first. Called Alex Rodriguez out, and they threw everything in the world at us. Somebody threw their car keys at the third base umpire, 
And oh. it was a BMW car key. So what? We should have gone through the parking lot. So <laughs> it's your car now. <laughs> so you mentioned, Joe, the no-hitter uh, uh, from Clay Buckholtz that you were behind the plate for. Now, when that is happening, you always want to get the call right. But do you feel pressure as something like that is going on, even more pressure to get the call right, as you know a no-hitter is on the line? Well, you, you know, the... The coolest thing is, and I hear announcers say this all the time, well, he's hesitated. He waited. Well, that's what you should do as an umpire. You wait till you gather all the information before you call anything. And when something like that's happening and you're at first base or second base or even behind the plate, you should wait just a little bit longer to be sure you've seen everything the correct way. And uh, and you'll get those plays. Right. The, you know, umpires are human. They're going to make mistakes. But the... The good umpires don't make mistakes in a crucial situation, and that's that's the big difference, mm-hmm. you know. You and I've been very lucky. All the all the playoffs I had and the World Six World Series I had, a, I've been very lucky that all my screwed up plays I got right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I had a I had a situation in Houston a few years back when they were playing Boston, and Altuve hit a ball in the right field, and it's probably going to go over the fence. And Mookie Betts jumped up and reached up to catch the ball over the playing field. And a spectator reached out and closed his glove. (laughs) So I had to call Altuve out for spectator interference. So the next day, my wife, Rita, who you want to interview anyway. I do. She's fabulous. (laughs) I say Lewison, by the way. Yeah. The next day, we're going to lunch with a friend of mine who's a lawyer there named Sam Adamo. And when we get to the restaurant, it's a little Italian restaurant on the west side of town. He's there in his three-piece suit, and he's got a glass of wine and a cigar, and he's looking at the tops of the buildings across the street. So we pull up and said, Sam, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for snipers, but I think you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Cowboy Joe West with character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. How did you get the nickname The Cowboy? Well, I had written a few songs, and I sent one of them to Merle Haggard. And his fiddle player, Jimmy Belkin, who was a friend of mine, sent it back. He said, if I give this to Merle, it'll be a B-side record. And this is back when 45s had an A-side and a B-side. And he said, if he puts it on a B-side, you you won't be able to do anything with it. He said, you ought to put it out and make it a novelty thing. And this is in the middle 80s. And uh, so by the time I got this back from Jimmy... I had I had written a couple more, and I had arranged a couple of instrumentals that I thought would be really cool to play when I would go to Gillies, because I was a Gilly rat. I was living in mm-hmm. Houston, Texas, and I used to go to Gillies almost all the time. And, and uh, So when I got it back, we put together some money, and we took the studio musicians that Mickey was using and, and used his studio, and, and we cut a full-blown album. And, one song on there, we only did one take on there. It was called Sing Me Back Home. It was a Merle Haggard song. And I used to do it on stage with uh, Gilly's house band. <clears throat> and we only did one take, and we kind of lost it in the shuffle. And so it came out on vinyl, and it came out, Blue Cowboy came out on the single. That was the title cut, Blue Cowboy. And uh, and when it came out, we, we kind of lost Sing Me Back Home. And when we remastered it into a CD... We found it, and the sound engineer was Jim Duncan, who's in the Radio Hall of Fame. He said, "We need to, we need to put this out there. This is this is very good, you know. <laughs> Even though it's a cover, it wasn't mine, but I mean, so we added that, and so now we have all these songs in this 
uh, Blue Cowboy album. And I've been selling that since the middle 80s. You can find that on MajorLeagueUmpires.com on the on the internet, and, and there'll be a section there that lets you order those. But uh, it's really funny that the second album I cut that you've got in your hand there is called Diamond Dreams. Yes, sir. And it's all baseball stories except one song that was written by the producer who was George Jones's piano player, Kid oh, Goodson. Great. And it's called, If You Cheat on Me, You'll Be Out at Home. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Did you get a chance to hear Adam Wainwright singing on Sunday Night Baseball? And if so, what did you think of no, him? I didn't get a chance to hear it. I've been trying to find it. I need to see We've got it. We'll it. have to play that for you next no, segment because we, be cool. we would love your assessment of Adam Wainwright, yeah. the musician. Yeah. <laughs> so an umpire that preceded Joe West, Ron Luciano, I think he was in the American League for two years while you were in the National League for two years. But he wrote a book called The Umpire Strikes Back. And one of the things that he wrote was was one time he was umpiring behind the plate for Nolan Ryan, and Ryan throws a fastball, no call, and he said, sounds like a strike to me. What was it like to be behind the plate with Nolan Ryan pitching? You know what's really funny is, uh, and I tell people this all the time, once, once you learn how to umpire behind the plate, the harder they throw it, the easier it is. Hmm. Guys like Ryan and... Uh, J.R. Richard and Tom Seaver, they were easy to call. The the knuckleballs and the sliders at the knees, they were the toughest pitches. But a guy like Nolan Ryan was, was easy to work. Now, he wasn't easy to hit because you had to catch <laughs> up with it. But I can, I can remember one day I was going into Texas and I was in the Rangers ballpark, and I, as I'm walking to the locker room, there was, a, there was a group of people coming. There was about 20 people. And I recognized one person. It was Jim Sunberg, the old catcher. And he was doing a, like a meet and greet with all these people. And he's walking them through the ballpark. And he stopped me and he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is Joe West, one of the senior umpires in baseball and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll give him credit. He introduced me to every one of these people by name. Now, my mother was one of 13 kids. And I couldn't tell you all of them's names. But he, every, <laughs> he knew everybody's name, introduced this, so and so and so. And the last person he introduced me to was his wife. And I said, well, I bet you probably yelled at me before. She says, I never yelled at you, ever. But Ruth Ryan sure did. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, a couple, maybe a month ago, there was a game where I thought Wayno was – and Wayno fools hitters. Can you, If a pitcher has a good curveball like Adam Wainwright, can that fool an umpire at times? Well, yeah, if you don't wait to see everything, that's what we were talking about yeah. earlier. You wait. need to you need to be sure you wait till the whole pitch comes in. And and the good thing about umpiring is you don't hit it have to hit it out in front of you <laughs> like the hitters do. You wait to to be sure that cross the plate at the right height, the, over the right corner, this, that, and the other. And uh, and and that's that's the sign of a good umpire that he waits to make that call. And um, and and you watch pitches that they complain about. Usually the umpire called them too quick, and mm-hmm. that's that's basically a key to help you. I mean, there's only three ways you can miss a player or a pitch, and that's a lack of positioning, lack of concentration, and lack of timing. And timing is waiting till it's all over. It'd be like the judge is going to hear a case, but he's only going to hear from the prosecution. Well, he didn't hear the whole case, mm-hmm. so you mm-hmm. have to wait till you get all the evidence. So. You've had such an interesting and unique vantage point to some of the best pitchers in the game, and I'm sure you've you've seen so many amazing pitches. But what's a pitcher that threw a pitch that made you even go, wow, 
That's unbelievable. Well, those knuckleballs that the Necro brothers threw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, my first game, I had Phil Necro and Joaquin Andujar. Wow. One guy was throwing gasoline, the other guy was throwing butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> and the game was over an hour and 57 minutes. Yeah. So you don't see that today either. Joaquin was an interesting character. Yeah. Joaquin had a great statement when he was with the Cardinals. He said, Whitey Herzog has it really easy. He's got nine leadoff hitters and Jack Clark. <laughs> so you uh, you spend a lot of time here. I know that you have a great relationship with Rick Hummel. You have great relationships with Jack Buck and Mike Shannon. We always talk about, and we hear it nationally, that St. Louis is the best baseball city. What, from an umpire standpoint, was different about St. Louis coming in, in as an umpire? I think uh, the fact that it's a baseball town and it, and it lives and breathes baseball. Everybody... In the surrounding area comes from, you know, there's another small city in the Midwest, Cincinnati, where when they had the big red machine, they did the same thing. But the Cardinals come win or lose. I mean, the fans here are completely different. They're they're loyal to a T, and that's that's I think that's what really sets them apart from everybody else. But uh, and I can remember the old days with Jack Buck and and uh, and he was he'd come to the locker room and he'd tell us a story. So there. There at the end, he he was uh, he was just tickled to death to come down and say hello to us. And he even told his son, he said, "You know, if you don't know their names, how can you say anything about them on the air? How can you ask your question or something?" He, and Buck was he was really good with us. I mean, and, and we've had a lot of great announcers. You know, Ernie Harwell with Detroit and Vince Scully, who just recently passed. Uh, but. Uh, and I used to salute Vince when he'd sit in the press box up there, and he <laughs> would he'd get up and salute back. And but uh, yeah, we, we've been very fortunate. I I don't think people realize that uh, someone like Jack Buck, with being the voice of the Cardinals, he's heard all over the Midwest, and and they live and breathe and die on every word that he would say. They did the same thing with Mike Shannon before Mike retired. But uh, and there's and there's very few people that had the longevity that those guys I think right. Dwayne Stats is probably the the longest tenured announcer that's here today and he's yeah. with Tampa Bay but and he's from here yeah and and he's yeah he brags about that because uh I talked to him oh, a few weeks ago over in Tampa and he was uh I'm trying to get him on my podcast because he's he's been an announcer for six decades and he, he he'd be a good guest to have so when Tampa Bay comes to town you need to get him yeah definitely Joe, speaking of your podcast, the 5460 podcast, it's amazing. You've had so many great guests, Charles Barkley, Joe Buck, Jerry Reinsdorf, just to name a few. Who is your white whale? Who do you really want to get on the podcast and have a conversation with? You. Oh, anytime, Joe. You just give me a call. I'm boring, though. (laughs) No, we've, we've had a lot of great guests, and I think the thing we tried to do with it was to prove that umpires aren't two-headed monsters like everybody believes they are. And it was really... It's really cute because uh, I've known Charles Barkley for years because of golf tournaments, and we've had we had Larry Gatlin on, we had Dave Casper. This week, Emmy Lou Harris is on for this week, and uh, she's a big baseball fan. She's she'll sit up in the stands and, and say, "I think the umpire squeezed him." <laughs> <laughs> she's really cute though, because she loves baseball, and she didn't she didn't start following baseball until she had this band that had. Uh, uh, the mandolin player in the band was a Cardinal fan, and and I think it was the bass player was a Cubs fan. 
I said, well, you didn't have it very easy there. She says, oh, we respected each other's viewpoints. <laughs> she was very diplomatic about it. Joe West is with us, the cowboy, and that is Adam Wainwright. Wrote that song and uh, is a huge country music guy. What oh, do you that's, think? That's great. He's got a little cry in his voice and everything. That's cool. I like yeah. that. So, hey, uh, a couple of things, Joe. Number one, about St. Louis. It, it's interesting how your career intertwined so much with St. Louis. You passed Bill Clem for the all-time record. Your last game was a Cardinal game. It seems like the Cardinals and Joe West seem to always find each other. Is that? Do you look at it that way? <laughs> I, I never thought of that. You know, I, I tell you, it was really funny. Somebody asked me one time. He said, "What's your favorite?" Favorite stadium, and I said, "Well, it used to be Wrigley Field, and then they put up the lights." And now I used yeah. to, I used to make happy hour, and I have trouble making last call. <laughs> so, and the fifty four sixty podcast debuted in May on the Podcast Heat Network, and you can hear Joe with Mike Claiborne, and a new one drops every week, and it is terrific. We, we've had the opportunity to listen to a lot of them, and it, it's something that I know that. Just in hearing you do it, that you you just love talking to people, right? You just love having those conversations with your old friends. Well, yeah, and they are my old friends. It's, we've only had uh, one guy on there that he really wasn't an old friend, but he was on there pr- uh, promoting that uh, one ad that we have for the B1 uh, patch, and that was Rick Barry, the Hall of Fame basketball mm-hmm. player. So we've had a great array of, of people from – we had Jerry Reinsdorf, and the people in Chicago were yelling at Mike and, and Joe over here, how did you get Jerry Reinsdorf? He doesn't talk to us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had Hulk Harrelson, and Hulk Harrelson and I have had our battles over the years, and uh, and the, the Charles Barkley uh, podcast, that was, that was funny as it could be. Uh, but, uh, of course, he's funny anyway. He's just uh, he's just fun to be around. And uh but we we've been very lucky with the people that we got. Rick Hummel was one of our mm-hmm. first guests. Mark Grace and and Kelly Chase, uh, that was hilarious. They they told us stories that could probably put them in jail uh, for for their uh, running into a flock of geese. So. <laughs> and the good thing about this is you can get every one of the podcasts when you when you click onto it. And uh, this week is Emmy Lou Harris. And we have uh, Jim McMahon's coming up, so uh, we've 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 had a great array of people. It was just been a lot of fun. This this profession has opened a lot of doors uh, for me. I I can't count the number of presidents and um, uh, another guest we had was George Will. Mm-hmm. And you talk about somebody serious about baseball. He 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 has his ideas as how things should be done, and and he's not afraid to tell you. So, but uh, it's it's been a it's been an interesting run. Who is the person that you met or got access to through this job that you were the most shocked by? Well, I would say presidents, because we've had them come by our locker room. And you know, it's really funny. Years ago, I was uh, working with Dutch Rennert. And Dutch was retiring that year. So I stole one of his umpire hats, and I took it to a place here in St. Louis to get the oak leaves put on the bill like an admiral's hat. <laughs> and so I took one of my hats, too. And so I was just going to put it up on, like, a shelf as, like, a display and everything. So we come out. We get to Houston, and we're coming out on the field. And who's sitting there but George and Barbara Bush? 
and I knew George Bush wore the same hat that I wore because of a hat maker that we both have in Cincinnati. So I said, boys, wait right here. I'll be right back. I ran back to the locker room, and I got this umpire's cap with the scrambled eggs or the what you call the oak leaves on the, on the uh, brim, and I gave it to George Bush, and he put it right on. Wow. It was cool, and it's in his library today. Oh, that's great. But the unique thing I noticed was over his shoulder, I saw that Barbara Bush kept the scorebook, just like the official scorer. So whenever I'd have them at a game and I would have a change that I would, was going to signal the press box, I would tell her first. Oh, that's great. Barbara, the pitcher's hitting fifth. And then I'd point upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and she thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And years later, she was in the hospital for something. And we called one of the Secret Service people. And I wanted to send her some flowers. So they said, send them to our office and we'll take them to her. So I did. And, and within three days, I got the nicest handwritten letter back from Barbara Bush. And she was, she was big on that. I, I didn't know it then at that time, but that's one of my keepsakes. You know, I have a, a Merle Haggard baseball and I have a Barbara Bush letter. Uh-huh. <laughs> Incredible. What else? What else did you keep from your career? Oh, I have all kinds of things. Uh, and it's funny. I learned I learned real early that when Haggard signs something, he just writes Hag. <laughs> he doesn't write Merle Haggard. If you see Merle Haggard on something, Bonnie Owens wrote that for him because she <laughs> she was I think she was his third wife, but she sang with him for years and and uh, so it, it was really neat because when I'd go visit that band, I knew everybody in the band. You know, it was really cool. I got I got a call the other day from one of his bass players, Dennis Romack, and uh, I was in. I was in Minnesota for something, and and uh, it was it was really funny. Here's this bass player from Merle Haggard's band lives in the wine country in California. And he knew some people that I was sitting with at, at this bar. Imagine that being at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I would, uh, you know, George Bush, Merle Haggard. You know, um, I I got I was lucky enough that. Uh, and here's a funny story for you. I met this guy named Sam Lavella. Sam Lavella produced every hee-haw there was. Huh. And Sam Lavella and Tex Switzen, who was Merle Haggard's old manager, got me on the Grand Ole Opry for a, a charity event. So I sang with the hee-haw band at the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. Now That's rem- amazing. Remember that name again now, Sam Lavella. So it was years later. I'm umpiring a spring training game in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And this kid came to bat, left-handed hitter. He said, my dad said, I better say hello to you. I said, who's your dad? He said, Sam Lavella, which, who produced there. So I get to talking to him. Oh, how's he doing? Everything okay? Da, 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 da. He, oh, yeah, yeah. So the catcher looked up and said, can we play now? <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so this kid that said, I, 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 my dad said, I need to say hello to you, was Tori Lavella. Mm-hmm. He's the manager of the Arizona wow. Diamondbacks. <laughs> All those years, you know. Amazing. What a full circle moment. Yeah. So we see a lot of players that when they get into the box, they like to chop it up with the opposing catcher, with the umpire. Who was the person that you knew was always going to come in and, and say hello and kind of give you the business? Well, I was pretty bad about making them say hello. When they were first time up, I would say, if you, I don't know where you played last year or where you're going to play next year, but if you don't say hello the first time up here, you're not going to be here very long. And they, <laughs> was, they were, okay, yes, hello. hello you know. <laughs> but uh, a couple years ago, they had this uh, 
player for the Red Sox. You might remember him. They called him Big Poppy. Yeah. we In St. Louis, we certainly remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see why. <laughs> but anyway, when he first came up, he was a Minnesota twin. And when he first came up, you know, he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. He was a terrible first baseman. And every now and then, he'd hit a ball really far. But for the most part, he had not developed as to what he later became. So the Twins traded him to the Red Sox, and he had a wonderful career. And uh, and he would, I mean, but that first game he I had him in spring training over in Tinkerfield in Orlando. He came out and he's throwing the ball around. He's this big, goofy-looking guy, and I said, I hope you play in this league a long time. He says, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I said, because as long as you're in this league, I won't be the ugliest guy in it. <laughs> so he just bowed his head like, oh, I got, I got caught there. You know? So years later, he announces his retirement after all those great things he did with the Red Sox. And uh, he comes to bed in May, and he says, I have something to tell you. I said, I don't want to hear it. You guys play too slow. Get in the box. <laughs> He said, no, just let me tell you one thing. Okay, tell me one thing and then get in the box. Said, you know I retiring. I said, I don't care if you retire. Get in the box. Let's go. You know. He said, one, just one. Okay, hurry up. He said, next year, you be the ugliest guy in the league. Oh. <laughs> he remembered after all his years. So, so I, did, I told that story on one of our podcasts. And I got a call from an old friend in California. And he says... Hey, now that you've retired, who's the ugliest guy in the league? <laughs> <laughs> what a line. Okay, so Big Poppy's the one that would come up and chop it up with you. Who did you know that when they stepped into the box, they were likely going to be the most combative with a call that you would maybe make? Oh, well, I don't know. They, most of them knew by the time they got got there that I wasn't going to put up with any grief. So they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't give me a hard time. But, or maybe but, a manager that you knew might question something. Well, we, you know, Gary Carter, he was, he talked to everybody. I mean, he, he never shut up. <laughs> and he was amazing because he had two strike zones. He had one strike zone when he caught and he had one strike zone when he hit. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he never shut up. He was the nicest guy uh, if you ever had a charity event and you invited him, he would be there. He'd be one of the first people there. And I'll never forget that I worked the All-Star game in 80, 86, I think it was. Anyway, he was uh, he was on an elevator with my mother. And uh, where she got this baseball, I don't know, because I didn't give her a baseball. She had it in her purse. And she asked him for an autograph on the elevator. And he had this real diplomatic answer, you know, I, you know, I've signed a contract. I can't sign baseballs unless the the money goes to a charity and da 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 da. And he's so somebody on the elevator says, uh, "Let me get this straight. You're not going to sign Joe West's mother's baseball." He said, "Let me have that ball, ma'am." <laughs> <laughs> hey, how is Tony to deal with between the lines? Good, good. No, Tony Larusa was very fair. I mean, he was. He was hard-nosed, took up for his players, and uh, he used to say things at the meeting at home plate, if, if it's questionable, just trust the umpires. He would say that. And uh, he did say this one time. He, somebody asked him why he, he never yelled at me very much. He says, because he saw me play in the minor leagues and he didn't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. But uh, I've known Tony for, what, 
almost 45, 46 years. So he was, yeah, and I had him as a player in the minor wow. leagues. Wow. The Cowboy Joe West with Carriker and Smallman for a few more minutes. And we thank you for your time. It's been great. I want to ask you what you think of the game right now because it's different than the game that we watched in the 70s and 80s. What do you think of baseball right now? Well, there's, there's two things I don't like. Uh, I don't like putting a runner at second base in extra innings. Mm. I think when they brought that up, I said, well, what, what would Harvey Haddis have thought when he's got a perfect game going into the ninth inning and the, you're just going to stick a guy on second base <laughs> when he, when he threw three more or four more innings of perfect baseball, we get to put a runner on second base, and uh, it's it's gotten to where I think the the players are not understanding how to manufacture one run. The the, the old Whitey Herzog teams they could manage a run, mm-hmm. they could get out there and steal a base or bunt a guy over. And uh, on one of my podcasts, we had Jim Leland. He said he said they don't hit and run, they don't bunt, they don't do the little things to win games until they get to the playoffs. And he said, and you watch them when they get to the playoffs, the good managers will do that to win a game. And so I don't like that rule. But uh, then again, there's there's a lot more to that than than whether I like it or not. It's whether the fans like it and, and so on. The designated hitter has been a bad rule since it was invented. It was never a good rule. Um, and it was put in the American League to get guys like Carl Jastrzemski and maybe a Mickey Mantle to play one or two more years as a designated here. And I think that's wrong. I think that the pitchers should bat. The pitchers should learn how to bunt a guy over. Mm-hmm. The pitchers need to be part of the game. If you told Don Drysdale or even this kid pitching today, Madison Bumgarner, that you can't hit anymore, they'd get mad. <laughs> yeah, right. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait upset about it. So it's not – I don't think it's, it's a good rule. Um, I can remember – Ron Fairley said to Joe Morgan, all it does is give the pitcher carte blanche to throw it who he wants to because he doesn't have to bat. And I can prove that that's a fact because when Roger Clemens got traded from the American League to the National League to pitch for Houston, he was a headhunter when he was in the American League. And when he pitched for Houston... It was amazing how a power pitcher didn't hit anybody all year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of people, Joe, in St. Louis that are thrilled with the designated hitter this year because it's allowing them to see Albert Pujols hopefully get to 700 home runs. You, I believe, were behind the plate for his 400th home run back in 2010. What do you think of Albert doing what he's doing right now in 2022? Well, I think it's great. It shows that us old guys can do stuff. <laughs> and I and he can still play first base. In fact, I think he played yesterday, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, he started yesterday. And, of course, it, 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 uh, it takes away – the DH also takes away from the manager having to do things um, in, in a certain situation in the game. And I can point back to Billy Martin uh, wearing out his pitchers in Oakland because he had the DH. And they would pitch more innings than the rest of the staff because he didn't have to change anybody in the fifth or sixth inning for a pinch hitter. And uh, Earl Weaver was the same way. Earl Weaver, would he'd have pitchers that would throw 200 pitches in a game. He didn't have a pitch count. And uh, so I, I don't think the DH is good for the game. And now, if you talk to Jerry Reinsdorf, he says the fans like it. And like you just said, the fans like it because Albert can play every day. and that And that's fair. And if the fans like it, that's fair. But in the long haul, I don't think it's good for the game. And now, that's my opinion. And maybe that's why I was relegated to being an umpire. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, 
I, I just don't I just don't like those two things about what's going on today. The players today are bigger, faster, stronger than they've ever been, and yet we don't have any Willie Mazes and we don't have any Stan Musials and we don't you know, Rod Rod Carew they asked Rod Carew about the shift and they said, What would you hit if they put the shift on you? He said nine hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean the little things like that, and they're trying to do away with the shift. But uh, you know, if they put the shift on you, then hit it the other way. I I told Paul Beeston one day. I said, "When was the last time you saw a guy play pepper?" He said, "I can't remember a big leaguer playing pepper." I said, "Well, that's how they learn to handle the bat. And if you put a shift on, you should be able to hit it to the other mm-hmm. side, or even bunch your way on. You know, that's that's just uh, that's just bad coaching." So those are little things that I think that, you know, we have to go back and decide what we're going to do. And today, you know, I was talking to Danny Cox the other day, and he said the pitchers today don't pitch inside either. And uh, and that's a mistake. You should The pitcher needs to use the whole plate, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I can remember guys saying one time, uh, that inside part of the plate's mine. And the hitter saying, no, the inside part of the plate's mine. And I used to say, no, it's really mine. (laughs) (laughs) Joe West, the 5460 podcast, 5,460 games umpired over 43 years. What was the coolest thing you saw? Oh, gosh. I think the coolest thing I saw, I wasn't there, was George Bush throwing out the the pitch after Mm 9-11. That was uh, impressive. It brought the country together. And uh, he, when he talks about it, and see, I knew his dad and his mom, you know. Right, so right. When he talks about it, he, he was he was humbled by it too. I think I think Jeter got under his skin. He said, "Don't bounce it. You're in Yankee Stadium; they'll boo you." <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be throwing out a first pitch on Friday night yeah. for the Cards and the Cubs. Don't bounce it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, uh, <laughs> I told Rita I'm going to have to warm up before I get there. <laughs> Hey, it has been so great to have you here in studio with us. We love the podcast, love that you're associated with our good friend Mike Claiborne, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. And oh, it's always you. great to see Rita. Thank you. Of course. I told you, you should you should be interviewing her, not me. <laughs> yeah, one of the all-time greats in St. Louis. Joe West, thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. With Black Friday savings at the Home Depot, you can get top brand laundry sets with the latest tech to tackle any mess you might face this holiday, like automatic fabric and load size detection for spills of any size, from cookies and milk on your favorite holiday sweater, to the toddler of the house discovering just how fun cranberry sauce can be. Make more magic this holiday season. Let your new appliances handle the mess. Shop Black Friday savings and get up to 30% off, plus instantly save up to $750 on select LG laundry sets at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Offer valid November 2nd through 30th. U.S. only. See store or online for details.